you know, the old adage was, don't be friends with your employees because you're going to have to fire them at some point. And I get that. I, I get that. I, that's hard. It's hard to fire a friend. The thing is, is that if you don't address that, if you don't figure it out, if you don't, you know, model that good behavior and make it safe to talk about important issues, you're not going to attract the best and the brightest. And when you do, you're not going to keep them for very long. Welcome to the Seismic Shift Podcast. I am so excited today for all of our listeners who are tuning in. We have, I, I, I can't tell you how many cool titles this guy has. This is Chester Elton. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He and I are in 100 Coaches together. He has inspired me. He is on brand. He, he has a, his finger on the pulse of what's happening right now in workplaces and how to solve it and get better. And let me just share with the listeners some of the titles that others have given you, Chester. This is so cool. You are the apostle of appreciation. You're the Dalai Lama of workplace trauma. You're a minister of motivation and you're a high priest of praise. Give it up for Chester Elton. Thank you so much for having, for being on the podcast today. Delighted to be here, Michelle. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen, amen brother. I mean, seriously, this is great. So, so I've been able to spend time with you and I get to hear at, at the end of our 100 coaches call. You just have this, again, your finger on a pul the pulse, a real grasp of what's going on. So considering that this podcast is about the seismic shifts of what's happening in the workplace and I'm on a mission as an author myself and as the podcast host, I'm on a mission to help leaders create positive workplace environments where their people can thrive. And the lens that I see the world is I believe it is all about connection. So my next book is How to Build a Culture of Connection to Drive Results, because I truly believe it's all about connection. So I want to start knowing all of that and that you and I have kind of similar missions in life, and I want to learn from you. So are you ready? I, I, let's go for it. I'm ready. So speaking <laughs> of seismic shifts, what seismic shifts have you been seeing in the world? You know, it, it's a great question. Um, right before the pandemic, uh, my co-author, Adrian Gostick, who you've met, um, wrote a book called Leading with Gratitude. And it, it was not so much a seismic shift as it became more into focus for leaders. You know, we've been writing together on, on culture and leadership and teams for over 20 years now. We've got a database of over a million engagement surveys. And one of the things that we look for, what are some common threads? What are some common themes? And we were delighted to find that the leaders that were the most productive, that had the best retention, that really had, you know, results that were superior to their, to their peers, the common thread was gratitude. And so I, you know, Michelle, I think it's always been there. What happened is that as we became more work focused than ever, that sense of, is my voice heard? Am I appreciated? Is, is my work meaningful? Is it noticed and rewarded and celebrated? Really came to the fore. Now, oddly enough, uh, right after we published Leading with Gratitude, and by the way, a little side story, we bought every bookstore in every airport in America two weeks before the pandemic hit, and nobody was in the airports, and nobody was. Uh, so that was uh, bad timing. Um the next big seismic shift was, of course, the pandemic, uh, which led us to, to research and then uh, write our book, uh, Anxiety at Work. Gratitude accelerated, 
you know, because I felt so vulnerable. I felt so alone, so, you know, off balance, right? Um, the number one cause of anxiety in the workplace is uncertainty. And boy, uh, the pandemic brought uncertainty to all-time highs, right? So it was really interesting that the two kind of came together because the seismic shift then for leaders through the pandemic was, and, and you know this, Michelle, you talk to leaders all the time. You know, if five years ago or six years ago, you'd said, what are the attributes of a great leader? You'd say, oh, you know, a motivator, communicator, you know, pays attention to the details, you know, plans the road forward. We found that the seismic shift there was empathy. That if you don't have leaders that lead with empathy, you haven't got much. And to your work in connections, nothing connects you better with your people than a sense of empathy. Now, really quick, and I'm interested in your input on this, if you think we're on the right track, is that empathy is different than sympathy, right? Sympathy is, bummer, dude, I'm glad I'm not you. You know, that's too bad. Empathy is, I don't know exactly how you're feeling right now. I have felt like that. Let's 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 talk it through and see see what we can come to. And then again, listening, you know, empathy is paired with with listening. Am I am I really listening to my people? Am I taking time to really figure out where they are? So those two big seismic shifts is that gratitude became ever more important and leading with empathy became the number one uh, issue that creates, to your point, Michelle really deep and meaningful connections. So yeah. what do you think? Are we on track? I love it. Yes, 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 <laughs> and yes. So what I found when I really, when I had my big Eureka, because so many of the leaders I had been working with were trained in the GE Jack Welch way. Sure. And that worked really, really well. I mean, we held those people up high esteem. We're like, man, they're crushing it. They're action oriented. They're so inspirational. And then you look behind the scenes and their people were scared. They had created, created cultures of fear and it was like the shaming and super controlling and oh my gosh so so that created a lot of anxiety at work which which we realized oh, and which we felt and so as i'm coaching these leaders and i'm seeing that that was becoming the old model and it was no longer effective i'm trying to figure out what the new model is and i had this big eureka that holy smokes the leaders who were doing it well as you stated were the leaders who were truly connecting with their people first in order to drive the results and how they were doing it was through, you're absolutely right, gratitude, appreciation, empathy, showing compassion, showing up as a real human and seeing the people as real humans. And so that big shift for me was huge aha. And then I realized I didn't know enough about connection because I had been trained under the Jack Welch GE way. And I was just like, sure. results, results, results. And I thought, okay, well, I needed to go and learn about it. And so I interviewed 18 leaders for my book. And, and what I found was exactly what you just said that, and I'm now calling it for my second book, Connection Drives Results, but I think that the leadership style now that's effective is radical humanity. And I think radical humanity is all about what you're saying. And, and that's what the leaders told me. What connection was, is leading with empathy, listening more than you talk, you know, showing up as a compassionate leader, creating a positive work environment. So that was the foundation. I think I did a pretty good job in that first book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, to say, okay, things have changed. The, the jerk bosses 
are out. We want compassionate bosses, right, who can listen and, and serve and develop and lead in different ways. So now you and I are trying to figure out, which I love, is, okay, so what are the elements? So you know that gratitude is essential. You know that empathy is essential. So if, if you were to be able to take a, an organization and, and wave a magic wand, what would the elements be to create this culture of connection that you and I both see is necessary? You know, a, a great question. Um, and that is, I, I think, you know, the first step in connection is, do you know their stories? You know, I think that's that's so important. Uh, we met a wonderful uh, leader. He was the commander of the International Space Station, actually, uh, Chris Hatfield. Um, as you know, I grew up in Canada and Chris Hatfield's Canadian. So <laughs> there was an immediate connection around Canada and hockey, as, as you would with uh, being Canadian. Um, and he talked to us about the three months that he spent up in the International Space Station with his really diverse team. You know, three Russian cosmonauts, two American astronauts, the Canadian in the middle. The difference in ages was 31 years, you know, so we had generational differences. Clearly cultural, language, all that. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is, you know, when you train to go up to the International Space Station, they train for 12 years. 12 years! Uh, with no guarantee that they'd actually get the call. So we talked to him about it. His group was uh, the most productive. Um, I don't know if it still is the most productive at the time, was the most productive group that had ever gone up to the International Space Station. So we were curious as to why. You know, what was the difference? What was different about this team? And he said, look, uh, Chester, we're really smart. I mean, we're NASA. <laughs> I thought that was great that he put that out there right away. You're talking to somebody who's really smart, okay? I said, which I already knew. He said, um, what was really important for our team was to make sure that we knew all the rules, that we obeyed all the rules, because, you know, you make mistakes in space. It's very unforgiving. You know, people die, a little bit of pressure. He said, so we were very good about drilling about all the things we needed to do, all the safety and all that. He said, what I'm convinced was the one unwritten rule that we had that made all the difference, that made us so hyperproductive. And it was this, and you're going to love this, Michelle, said, we had one unwritten rule, and it was this, that every astronaut had to perform a random act of kindness for every other astronaut every day. Now, think about that, right? I know, just, you know. And he said, by the way, nothing big. I mean, we're up there for three months, right? It's like, I'll, I'll clean the equipment. Let me uh, make the meal. Let me help you with those calculations, whatever it might be, right? He said, because we did that, there was never a heated argument. No one ever lost their temper. Because when you're constantly serving people in these little ways, I love to call them random acts of kindness, right? When you're serving people in little ways every day, what's the message? The message is, hey, you're on my team. I'm cheering for you. I've got your back. You're not alone. There's always help. And he says and that I love you. Well, when you've got that level of empathy and caring and connection, uh, things go well. He said, by the way, and we knew each other's stories. We knew where they came from, how they got here, what they wanted to accomplish while they were here, where they wanted to go from here, right? Now, take that and bring it back to your team and say, look, if on my team I've taken the time to figure out, you know, where Michelle came from, you know, where she grew up, how she got here, right, what she wants to accomplish while she's here, and where she wants to be three to five years from now. Well, wow, now you've got the picture of somebody that you know how to put it in a, uh, put them in a situation to succeed. You, you know what they care about, right? Uh, and, and that's connection. So I would say, first and foremost, particularly if you're coming into a new team, 
take the time in your one-on-ones to ask those questions and get to know their stories. Because when you know somebody's story, everything changes. Gosh, and it all changes for the better. Agree with you more. That is exactly (laughs) what I uncovered. And I try to, when I facilitate executive meetings, I try to convince the executive, let's spend some time first and foremost, sharing leader stories, where they came from, what their background was, maybe a significant life event that affected their leadership. And I was just on a coaching call yesterday, Chester, and an upcoming executive retreat that I'm facilitating, the leader said, no, that's too vulnerable. I don't want to do that exercise. He said, that's too touchy-feely. We're a technology company. I think that's just going to go badly. And, and how do you convince, though, a leader that owning your story, that is the foundation of connection? Like you said, there's really, as humans, we judge, and I hate that. So if we as coaches continue, which I know we do, is, is to preach, you know, assume positive intent. That affects everything, right, in a positive way. But it's hard because humans, without all the information, assume negative. So they go negative. Well, if you don't share your story, then people make up their own stories about you. And they're typically wrong wrong, incorrect, and biased negatively, right? And so how would you convince this leader? No, no, no. I hear you. I know it's a vulnerable moment, but we have to begin with owning our stories. Yeah, not an uncommon, you know, situation for those of us that coach and train and speak. And I, I think, you know, the way that you change that dynamic is you say, look, um, you've hired me as an expert to come in and talk to your people. And I need you to trust me on this one. I need you to trust me. I've done this in a lot of places. It's never gone badly. Because even though you say, look, you were tech people, we're not touchy-feely. The one thing that you have in common with every other workshop that I've ever done is there's humans in this workshop, right? <laughs> like, you know, I always love it when you go to speak about culture or you go to speak about, you know, anxiety or, you know, mental health or, or gratitude. People say, yeah, but you know, we're, we're finance or we're hospitality or we're potato chip manufacturers. I go, yeah. You know what the one thing you all have in common? You all have people working for you last time I checked, right? And people are people and everybody's got a story and everybody's story is the most important story in the world. Let them tell it. Let him tell it. Beautiful. I just could not agree with you more. And Brene Brown's work has really influenced me. And, and she talks a lot about, you know, connection and owning your story. And it begins there. So I now call it owning your leadership journey. Because I do, in workplaces, I do want to just talk about more kind of like, what have you learned from bad bosses? Tell me about your leadership journey. You know, a significant event that, that affects how you lead. But you're right. We're all human. And we need to know, like, that Chester's from Vancouver, Canada. How cool is that? Right. He's a Canadian and he lives in Jersey. He's got four kids. He's got how many grandkids? I think you have at least three grandkids. Um, three, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm in New Orleans, you know, I, I'm, I'm a business professor at Loyola. The more information that you give, then the more people really tried, at least they understand you. So that is the foundation of connection. I love it. And so now let's go one further. So connection with yourself is vital, right? And that's owning your story because then it, you can show up as a genuine human and then connect with others at a human level. So what advice would you give listeners today, Chester, is how then do you connect with your team. So you had mentioned in one-on-ones asking those questions so that you make sure you know about each other's stories. What about in team environments? How should leaders go about showing empathy and, and showing up with gratitude? How do you embed that? 
Yeah. Um, you know, the easiest way to do it and the hardest way to do it <laughs> for a lot of leaders is share your story. You know, you model that behavior, right? Uh, I'll tell you, you know, um, when we wrote Anxiety at Work, people say, you know, I can't talk about that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, and by the way, the numbers prove it out. Do you know that 90% of employees will not talk to their uh, immediate supervisors or leaders about mental health? And why? Because of the stigma. I'll be perceived as weak. I won't get the promotion. I won't get, I, I, I can break my leg, you know, um, skiing and I get all the time off I need. But I go to my boss and say, you know what? I am just completely overwhelmed. We've been pulling these 80 hour weeks for three. I need a mental break. And And by the way, I may need a week. I go, whoa, 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 Michelle, wait a second. We told you this was a high-pressure job. Now you're telling me you can't take it? That's the fear, right? So a really uh, a friend that we made uh, in, in writing this book, um, uh, Nabila El-Sayed, she was just uh, moved as the chief people officer for Walmart Canada, 100,000 employees. And, and she said, when we wrote the book Anxiety at Work, she goes, I, I want 4,000 copies of that book. Which, by the way, if you're an author, that's the best phone call you've ever gotten in your life, right? So, uh, so I said, well, why? She said, because this is an issue that we have to address, that we're having such a hard time addressing. I said, well, how, how do you open the door? She said, I tell them my story right from the get-go. I'll say, my name is Nabila. I'm a recovering workaholic. I've worked at these big brands. I've done incredibly well in my career, and the cost was too high. It cost me my marriage. It cost me my mental health. It cost me my physical health. Now, here's what's really great, is once you as a leader do that, you open the door, it's okay for everybody else to tell their story, right? Now, here's what was fascinating, and she related this story to me. She said, I was in a, a big town hall meeting, introduced myself. I'm a recovering workaholic. Bum, 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 bum. I want you to know that we have created a, a culture here where it is, is safe for you to talk about it. You will not be penalized. We will not think less of you. And then she took questions. And one of the, of the employees said, well, Nabila, easy for you to say now. You're the chief people officer for Walmart Canada. Would you have gotten to where you are today had you not made those sacrifices? Great question and put her absolutely on the spot. And I loved her answer. She said, I absolutely would have gotten here. It would have taken me longer. And knowing what I know now, I would make that trade. Ah, oh, wow, that just sent chills. That is beautiful. Yeah. So if you want to open the door to, you know, getting to know people's stories, tell your story. Tell your story. And say, by the way, Every, every time we have a meeting, we're going to highlight one of you. Now, look, don't share anything you're uncomfortable sharing, but we'd love to know. And just tell us those, answer those four questions. Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? What do you want to accomplish? And where do you want to be three years from now? Uh, one of my uh, leadership heroes, a guy named Scott O'Neill. He's now the CEO of Merlin Entertainment. If you go to London, the big London Eye and all the uh, wax museums and stuff, that's all part of their purview. He said, you know, you can ask that question. You're going to get some wacky answers. I said, what's the wackiest one? You had? He says, I asked one of my employees, and he was in sports. He was the CEO of the Philadelphia 76ers, the New Jersey Devils. He said that one of my employees said, I, I, I want to go to the moon in five years. The moon. And he said, you know what your only answer to that is? Let's see how we can help you get there. 
Who doesn't want to work for that guy? <laughs> you know? I mean, seriously. Um, and by the way, going to the moon is getting more and more possible. Yeah, right? exactly. It's not uh, year, as outlandish as it was back then. We're like, oh, we'll, we'll go to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> England, Mars. I, I can, yeah. I can at least get you into the stratosphere. That's close, you know? So um, I love leaders that lead with vulnerability. And I know that that's going to be a big part of your work in Connections. If, if you model that right behavior, you know, you're going to be, you're, you're going to open the door. It's going to be fine. And by the way, some people are going to be uncomfortable with it and that's okay. I want to come up with and a new okay. word, a new, uh, a new synonym for vulnerability because so many people don't like it. No matter how often people say vulnerability is strength, it is not weakness. Why don't we come up with a new word? What can, what can we say that, that kind of gets the same message across? What we're asking for is leaders just to show up as human. Yeah. And not perfectionists. Yeah. It's giving up perfection, I think. Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is Brene Brown, your hero, uh, you know, professor at the University of Houston. Uh, go Cougars, right? Um, she talks about changing the label from soft skills. Again, soft skills get a bad rap. You know, I've got hard skills. We get things done. Those are the good skills. Soft skills, touchy-feely, sit in the hot tub, sing kumbaya. I'm not into it, right? She said, we got to change that to your soft skills are your power skills. And I love that. You know, if you can relate to your people, and you think of some of the great leaders that you worked for. You know, we got to uh, interview uh, Ken Chenault right after he retired to American Express. Incredible run of success. He used to carry a book around with him and make notes as to people that he was going to write thank you notes and, and remember to thank at the end of his visit. He and, and, and people say, yeah, well, if you're leading with gratitude, you're probably, you know, kind of people take advantage of you. Yeah, you're going to be perceived as soft. Trust me, nobody thought Ken Chenault was a soft leader. You know, Alan Mulally, you and I have met Alan. We've, we've sat in on some of his seminars. Uh, do you think Alan Mulally's soft? Not a chance. In, in, in that book, you know, American Icon, they described him as having a spine of titanium. And yet, when you talk about culture, what, what, what does Ellen always say? It's all about your people. Love them up. Love them up. I feel love like he was one of the first leaders who made it okay to even use the word love in the workplace. Love them up. So many leaders think that that's not even appropriate. And that's what I think also this radical humanity is. There's a radical reckoning going on because you're right. We had swung so far to the work, 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 work at, at such horrible costs, I think, um, at least in America. And, and so now I think the pendulum is swinging in another way. Like if we're spending most of our times at work, most of our time at work, why can't we show up as humans and treat each other with kindness and love? And that, and that Morag Barrett is a really good friend of mine and we work together and she wrote the book, Me, You, We, Why You Need to Show Up as a Friend at Work and, and How. And it's really based on that Gallup employee engagement survey question, I have a best friend at work. And for 20 years, leaders have been saying, throw that question out. Nobody wants to have a friend at work. Well, guess what? <laughs> you need a friend at work. You need to show up as a friend. You, you know, we've got, that's what I think one of the seismic shifts is going on right now. And we're, you and I and Morag and so many of the 100 coaches, we're trying to, to help leaders and organizations solve it and move in a direction of, it's not just work and bottom line. It's just not. Yeah. Now, I know we're running out of time, but I really want to get this in. And this is why it's ever more important. And this has been my latest soapbox as soapbox as your minister of motivation and high priest of praise. 
Um, there was a wonderful book written, and it keeps getting updated, uh, called Bowling Alone. It's the history of American society. And it's really interesting. I love the title Bowling Alone because he says, look, the great, the greatest generation, you know, my parents, right? The Second World War generation said, you look at the, their lives. They were so engaged, right? They, they had their softball clubs, their bowling leagues, their, their bridge clubs, right? Everybody volunteered. Everybody went to church. Everybody. Now, it's really interesting. Back then in, let's go to the 60s, you know, uh, where the baby boomers really were having big families and stuff. Um, population of the, of the U.S., I, I'm, I'm guessing on this, I think I'm pretty close. It's probably about 130, 140 million, right? Correct. Now we're like 350 million. Number one mental health issue in America today, loneliness. So let me get this straight. Three times as many people, nobody was lonely in the 60s. Well, not nobody, but you get my drift, right? Why? And to your point, it's because all those communities, whether it was a church or your volunteerism or your bowling league or your softball league, have all diminished and disappeared. Why? Because all we do is work. And we've got smartphones and we've got, it's five o'clock somewhere, you know, we're, we're 24-7. Now, you and I both met him, Bob Waldinger wrote the book, The Good Life, this 80-year study at, at Harvard. What, what creates a long, happy, and healthy life? Deep and meaningful relationships. He talks about people that go to church are happier than people that don't. And it doesn't matter what church. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, the Baptists aren't happier than the Catholics, they, you know. The people that are married and are, are happier, even if they've got contentious men. So what, what he talks about is, so where are all those communities now landing? They're landing at work. So yeah, I better have a best friend at work. That's where I spend almost all my time. Yeah, I better have, you know, look at what companies are offering. They're offering the communities, the Latino community, right? The LGBTQ community, the, the best place for working mothers, the best place to start your career, and on and on and on. When we grew up in bed, there was none of that stuff. You came to work at eight and you left at six and nobody could get a hold of you after six. And that was, by the way, uh, we, we didn't realize what a gift that was, right? So my, my point is, is now this seismic shift in leadership is, as a leader, your, your employees don't want you to just be a good leader and help them become a better worker bee. They want you to help them become a better person. And all this community is landing. Now, here's the big problem with this, Michelle. And it's huge, or as we would say in New Jersey, huge, <laughs> is, the, is the younger generations coming into the workplace. Like you and I, if we had four or five jobs, that was a lot. They're changing jobs every two and a half, three years. So they build a community into it and then boom, they move and then boom, they move and then boom, they move. No wonder loneliness is, is so high. No wonder anxiety is so high. So this leadership uh, of, of empathy and connection and, and gratitude and making it okay to talk about mental health, you got to do it really fast. Now, I'm convinced and years will have to go by to prove it out is that leaders that lead that way, people won't leave every two and a half, three years. They'll stay for four, five, six, maybe 10. And you'll create that culture where people want to come. They want to stay. They want to give their best. There'll be an emotional connection. There'll be a, a, a friendship connection. And I know it's, you know, the old adage was, don't be friends with your employees because you're going to have to fire them at some point. And I get that. I, I get that. I, that's hard. It's hard to fire a friend. The thing is, is that if you don't address that, if you don't figure it out, if you don't, 
you know, model that good behavior and make it safe to talk about important issues, you're not going to attract the best and the brightest. And when you do, you're not going to keep them for very long. So that was a lot. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So how, so let's end with this, Chester. How do you recommend the leaders who are listening today and they think, okay, gratitude and appreciation is really important and I probably don't do it enough. What can they do? That's easy. Yeah, just start with simple things. I, I love just random acts of kindness. I, I've got a little tradition. I, I, I literally carry up, up my pockets full of rocks. And this is my little gratitude stone. And, and I give them to the guys at the car wash. And I give them to the guys at the bakery and the crossing guards and so on. And it's just a little something that says, hey, listen, I know you guys don't get a lot of, of, of good news, right? Um, I just want you to know I really appreciate you as a crossing guard. You're keeping our kids safe. And here's a little token. And it's a stone because you throw a stone in the water. The water ripples just like gratitude. Find little traditions, little something. Start your meeting with highlighting an employee. You know, take a, a page from Ken Chanel. Take a little notebook. Write things down. Drop people a, a little text. Drop a little something. Assume positive intent about people. And and by the way, if, if, if you're having a really tough go as a manager, recognize people for showing up. <laughs> you know, just say, yeah, I'm just so glad you showed up today. Right? You can always find something. And then the last thing is start your own personal gratitude practice. You know, how do you start your day? How do you end your day? Uh, my wife, Heidi, and I just celebrated our 40th anniversary. Oh, and it's been, wow. Yeah. Chester, happy anniversary. Well, and, you know, I, I tell her, you know, multiple times a day, I said, I, I, I'm more I'm more in love with you now than ever. But we have this tradition, and I highly recommend it, is at the end of the day, ask each other, what are your three? What are three things you're grateful for? Grateful for time with the grandkids. Grateful for the, you know, the the, the lovely weather. Grateful for that dinner we had last night with with friends and family. It just meant the world to us, you know. Start your day with gratitude. End your day with gratitude. And make sure that ripples through your day with your people. Don't hesitate. You think, oh, I'll save it. I'll remember. I'll, I'll do it later. No, you won't. Primacy, recency. Do it now. Do it often. Be sincere is our role. Do it now. Do it often. Be sincere. If those little tips helped you, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. But uh, I'm a big fan of journaling and reflecting. One last plug. Um, we just uh, went to press with our gratitude journal. It's called The Gratitude Habit, 90 Days to a More Grateful Life. I will send you a copy, Michelle. Oh, my you will gosh. <laughs> did you and Adrian write that? We did. We wrote it together, and we published it with The 100 Coaches Press. Oh, great, with Amplify. Amplify. With, yeah, with Naren, who's just fantastic. Naren wants to um, publish my second book. Yeah. So anyway, we didn't publish it for it to be a bestseller. We really published it because as a follow on for uh, coaches uh, or leaders that we coach, uh, people that we uh, present to in conferences and, and workshops is this is a great little if you can if you can do it for 90 days. And by the way, you can miss days in between. It may take you 100 days to get through 90 days. Those little things do a lot to increase your self-worth to appreciate other people. And by the way, in our book, Anxiety at Work, the eight strategies on how to deal with anxiety in the workplace, the eighth strategy is gratitude. You can't be in a state of anxiety and a state of gratitude at the same time. Oh you can't my hold two emotions. Isn't that Choose wonderful? Gratitude. And you know, this is the week of, of mental health week. And I've been seeing a lot of um, our Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. 
And when he wrote his report that we are in an epidemic of loneliness and what you referred to and what Bob Waldinger refers to is 300 million adults identify as lonely and isolated, and it's really affecting college students today. So he had nine recommendations and his fifth recommendation or his ninth was create a culture of connection. And I love that you went back to talking about bowling leagues. I remember growing up and my dad, I mean, I don't remember, I, I remember seeing my dad a lot, but when we talk now, I'm like, were you ever around Monday night poker, <laughs> Tuesday night softball, Wednesday night bowling? And you're right. And they got it right. They had lots of connections. So to wrap this up, we need to bring those connections and I call it ritual and rhythm is you need to embed ritual and rhythm in your calendar. So find the rituals personally and professionally, right, that you want to surround, the people that, that you have in common with, a book club, wine club, whatever you want to do, and then embed it into your operating rhythm. And that ritual and rhythm is key to social connection, right? Absolutely. What are your rituals? What are your tokens? And, and you know, whether it's a little gratitude stone or, or so on. I have to tell you, I just texted Bob Altinger this morning. And I said, I just want to thank you for your book. And for being on our podcast about anxiety, I said, you know, my big takeaways, he said, you have to be disciplined in your relationships. He says, I look at my calendar every week. Who am I having breakfast with? Who are we having over for dinner? And I've started to do that. And it has made all the difference. Be disciplined about it. Reach out to people. No one ever says, I can't believe you reached out to me and said how much you love me. You know, that really bugs me. Could you stop doing that? No, no, no one says that. Everybody. My dad had a great saying. He said, Chester, you be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day, and it is so true. Oh, Be that kind. is beautiful. So, listeners, let's do it. Let's do this together and, and make, it, make it intentional, right? Build a culture of connection. Find those rituals and rhythms. Begin with gratitude. Um, let's go ahead, and, and I do want to buy Chester and Adrian's book. What is it, The Gratitude Habit? The Gratitude Habit, available for pre-order. And, and as we close, and I know our, our, our wonderful producer is saying, hey, it's time to wrap it up. Um, Michelle, I just want to let you know how grateful I am for you and your friendship. We go to these meetings, and you always come with such a great smile and a great attitude, and you lift up everybody around you, and I'm grateful for that. Oh, Chester, that's so kind. Thank you. And let's end with that. Listeners, we're so grateful that you took time to share your day with us, and please go ahead and share what you're grateful for. And these random acts of kindness really do matter, and let's make our lives a better place to live. Thank you so much, everybody. for joining us on the seismic shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in your using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life. <music>